Welcome to the Vail Christian Church Podcast, where we are training followers of Christ to worship, gather, give, and serve. We are continuing in our series. Uh, Pastor Ben is taking some time. He's, he's studying up for the series that's coming up for Resurrection Sunday and all that stuff. So he'll be back with us next week. But um, last week, Matt did a great job walking us through the grief and the suffering that Jesus went through as he's wrestling with the task ahead. Uh, as he's carrying the, the weight, uh, literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. What an immense task. And so we can really see the humanity of Jesus as we move closer and closer to the cross. And he's thinking about what he has to deal with um, to bear the weight of the world, to, be, to feel the betrayal and the sting of others and to feel the pain of walking alone when your friends don't even want to follow where you're going. But Jesus is up to the task because Jesus has prepared for this. So after Jesus is arrested in the garden and after that passage, as if you remember about the streaker, right? The guy who runs off naked. Uh, Jesus is taken before the Sanhedrin for really is kind of a mock trial. We're going to see that. Now, a few weeks ago when I spoke, and I know you all remember that, right? Yeah? All right, anyways. Um, a few weeks ago when I spoke, we looked at, at, at this encounter that Jesus had with the religious leaders, and they had this question they brought before him. And we could see the uh, contempt that the religious leaders had for Jesus. And it says even then they had decided in their hearts they were going to kill him. And they're looking for anything they can find uh, to, to have a reason to put him to death. And so... They're going to do this trial. They're going to take Jesus. They've arrested him. And this trial is going to take place at night in the darkness, under the cover of darkness, right? That's usually when wicked deeds happen under the cover of darkness. Jesus came to bring all things into the light. Joke's on them because now we are talking about this today and everybody knows what happened because this is the greatest injustice that's ever happened. So the rest of the city uh, is asleep. Roman officials are in town. It's Passover. So they're all there as well. They've been partying the whole week. That's what they do. And so uh, this is an opportunity for the religious leaders to take Jesus, to try to get him to say something, do whatever. And they're finally going to do whatever it takes to get rid of Jesus. So Jesus is arrested. He's led to Caiaphas, the high priest, and the rest of the Sanhedrin. So we're going to pick up in Mark chapter 14, verse 53. And this is what it says. Then they led Jesus to the high priest and all the chief priests and elders and experts in the law came together. And Peter had followed him from a distance up to the high priest's courtyard. He was sitting with the guards and warming himself by the fire. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death, but they did not find anything. Many gave false testimony against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some stood up and gave this false testimony against him. We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands and in three days build another not made with hands. Yet even on this point, their testimony did not agree. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, have you no answer? What is this that they are testifying against you? But he was silent and did not answer. And the high priest questioned him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? I am, said Jesus. And you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, why do we still need witnesses? You've heard the blasphemy. What is your verdict? And they all condemned him as deserving death. Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to strike him with their fists saying, prophesy. The guards also took him and beat him. Wow. So this is the greatest injustice that has ever been done in all of history. This is Jesus. He's innocent. He's never done anything. He's never sinned. And he's being brought before the Sanhedrin and the cover of night. And we're going to see here, we're going to look at this and see uh, just what an injustice was done here. Um, we don't read about this in Mark, but in John chapter 18, it tells us that Jesus is taken to Annas, who was the high priest. Caiaphas is actually his son-in-law. He's taken there first because for some reason he still holds a lot of political power. Uh, while he's there, basically, uh, he is questioning Jesus and Jesus tells him, look, I have nothing to hide. He's got nothing to hide. He's been on the earth for three years doing this, this min public ministry and he challenges Annas to defend his indictment against him. And what ends up happening is one of the guards strikes Jesus and says, how dare you talk to the high priest this way? Then he's brought to Caiaphas. So the Jews had an elaborate judicial system based on uh, Deuteronomy 16, 18 through 20. This is where we find this system coming into place. And it says this, you must appoint judges and civil servants for each tribe in your villages that the Lord your God is giving you. And they must judge the people fairly. You must not pervert, or pervert justice or show favor. Do not take a bribe for bribes blind the eyes of the wise and distort the words of the righteous. You must pursue justice alone so that you may live and inherit the land the Lord your God is giving you. So again, the Jews over the course of a millennia had come up with all of these systems, um, all these judicial rules and things. Remember, God called the Israelites his chosen people and they were to look different than the other people in Cana, the other nations around them. One of the ways they were to do this is they were to treat people justly and righteously. That was what God wanted because the other nations didn't do that. And therefore, they would be set apart for treating people differently. They treated uh, the foreigners that came into the nation much differently as well. They had mercy and compassion. So this is part of this whole thing. And this was a complete violation. This trial of Jesus was a complete violation of all of these rules and these systems as they, that they had created. Um, as one example, Mark says that many bore false witness against him. Well, according to the law of Moses, this is now in the next chapter, uh, chapter 19, verse 16, it says that if you bring testimony against someone and it is found that testimony is false, whatever would have happened to the person that you're testifying against becomes your punishment. That's how serious they were about this. You did not bring false testimony uh, against anybody. Otherwise, unless you were willing to take that chance. And so in this case, we see that it seems like they're even paying people off trying to get them to give false testimony against Jesus, uh, removing that consequence from them. The Sanhedrin is conducting this trial at night during the Passover, both of which are violations of the law. 
Trials were never allowed on the Sabbath. They're not allowed on feast days, the Passover, the day before, and they're supposed to be conducted out in the open. This sort of trial should have been held during the day in the public eye, in the court. This is actually happening at what you read in Caiaphas court. It's actually like it is house. It's not even at the, the court where they would normally do these things. It's not held in public so people can't come forward with evidence. Our justice system is founded on a lot of these same principles that came out of Judaism, of justice, fairness, of having being innocent until proven guilty, having to provide witnesses and evidence. All these things are, are coming from this. And so what we see here is it's totally been turned on his head. The Sanhedrin expedites the verdict. There's no appeal process, uh, the charge. They don't even have a charge when they arrest Jesus. They're trying to manufacture a charge, trying to get him to say something. And then it gets changed a number of times during the trial. Uh, they want it done. They want it over with. They know that the Roman officials are in town. Remember, the Jews cannot convict somebody. They technically can't try somebody and convict them and, and execute punishment. The Romans have to do that. So what they're hoping to do is to stir up the crowd, get the people on their side. They've got all the, the whole Sanhedrin and they're hoping that that will be enough to get the Romans to um, side with them. The Sanhedrin um, does this, and it's a unanimous verdict. I believe Jesus lets this continue the way it does to bring fulfillment of prophecy. Because what we see here is a number of prophecies that are fulfilled. And so I want to look at those real quick because I think it's really important. In verse 61, it says, Jesus remained silent. This is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7. It says, he was treated harshly and afflicted, he, but he did not even open his mouth. Like a lamb led to the slaughtering block, like a sheep silent before her shears, he did not even open his mouth. In verse 62, we find the claim that, that they finally indict him on. Um, but they, they equate to the blasphemy, and that's because Jesus claims to be God. He uses that I am, verse 62. He also uses that title, son of man, um, and he, he looks back at a couple passages in the Bible. First one, Psalm 110.1, and it says this. This is David speaking. Here is the Lord's proclamation to my Lord. So this is the Lord and somebody who's above David. It's his Lord. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus actually refers back to this passage, uh, this passage a few times. And then one of the big passages that Jesus pulls a lot of stuff from that comes up over and over again is Daniel 7, 13. 13 and 14. And this is where he gets this title, son of man, from that he uses a lot. It says this, I was watching in the night visions and with the clouds of the sky, one like a son of man was approaching. He went up to the ancient of days and was escorted before him. To him was given ruling authority, honor and sovereignty. All peoples, nations and language groups were serving him. His authority is eternal and will not pass away and his kingdom will not be destroyed. Uh, the next one is found in verse 65. 
This is where Jesus is beaten. Isaiah 50 verse six says, I offered my back to those who attacked, my jaws to those who tore out my beard. I did not hide my face from insults and spitting. Jesus knows what the scripture says. He knows what the scripture says. He's been preparing his whole life for this and he knows what it says. The teachers and the experts of the law who are there, who are condemning him, they also know what the scriptures say. So immediately when he uses all of these references, they know exactly what Jesus is saying. Uh, remember that these scribes and the Pharisees, this was something that you were taught from such a young age. You didn't get to, to choose this when you were an adult. It was too late. They started memorizing the scriptures as children and they were experts. So the priests know what it say. So they condemn Jesus to death on the charge of blasphemy because he claims to be equal with God. High priest tears his garment signifying his disgust and contempt for Jesus. And then Jesus is unanimously condemned to death by the council of the Sanhedrin. One other interesting note is that the, uh, again, in these judicial system of the Jews at the time, they had a rule that said that if there was a unanimous verdict, that it was thrown out because it was said not to have mercy in it. You didn't have unanimous verdicts. Well, in this case, the verdict is unanimous and they move ahead anyways. I think this whole passage here is one of those that I like to throw back at people, especially uh, people who claim to be Christians, but they deny that Jesus was the son of God or that he was God entirely. We believe that God is fully man and he's fully God. Jesus is fully man and fully God. Uh, but there are people who, who don't think that that's the case. Or maybe I hear a lot of people say, well, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He's a good example for us to set. And I think you can go back to a passage like this and go, there's no way. Uh, you probably heard C.S. Lewis' famous statement that Jesus gives us three choices about Christ. Number one, Jesus is a liar. Number two, he's a lunatic for claiming to be God. And number three, uh, he is who he claims to be, and that is he is the Christ. And I'm gonna say that because he is predicted his own death and he came back to life. And look at what has happened after his resurrection. So I think we don't have a choice right here. And this is one of those reasons Jesus claims to be God so many times and he uses this language. And you cannot separate that from good moral teaching. They're one in the same. That's what he came here to do. He didn't come here to just give us some, some good quotes and things like that. He came here because he was God and he came to take the punishment for our sins and to overcome death for us. He also uses this title, uh, he, he talks about the son of man sitting at the right hand of power. And this is really key because this is something at the time that was a very common expression used to denote God. And the Jews did not use God's formal name. They didn't write it because they had such holiness and respect for it. And so this was something they would have used commonly. I'm saying all this because I want you to know when Jesus makes these claims, they, everybody who's listening immediately knows what's happening. They've been waiting for a savior. They've been living off these prophecies, waiting for somebody to come. And then he says, guess what? I'm the fulfillment of all of the prophecies of all the scripture. I'm the one that they're talking about. And obviously, they completely reject him. 
And so the greatest injustice ever is carried out against the most innocent person who has ever lived, of which we are the beneficiaries. And now the story turns to Peter. So we're going to pick back up here, Mark 14, 66. And we're going to focus on this for the rest of the message. This is what it says. Now, while Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the high priest slave girls came by. And when she saw Peter warming himself, she looked directly at him and said, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it. I don't even understand what you're talking about. And he went out to the gateway and the rooster crowed. And when the slave girl saw him, she began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But he denied it again. And a short time later, the bystanders again said to Peter, you must be one of them because you are also a Galilean. Then he began to curse and he swore an oath. I do not know this man you're talking about. And immediately a rooster crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him. Before a rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Wow, can you imagine what Peter must have been feeling in that moment as the weight of what he had did came crashing down on him? Notice how Mark puts these two passages, these two stories together. He does this a lot. Um, in, in the beginning of Mark, he likes to take passages that, that um, give more of an objective viewpoint of what Jesus is doing. So for instance, he feeds the 5,000. We read this incredible story. Then he'll take a passage and, and take us to the side where he's with the disciples explaining what happened. As we move into the Passion Week, what Mark likes to do is contrast what is happening with Jesus, the grief and the anguish and the suffering that he's going through and, and contrast it with what's happening with the disciples, what's happening with Peter especially. We saw in the garden, Jesus is bearing the weight of all the sin on his shoulders and the weight of what's happening, this cup that's before him, the disciples are asleep. And so we see this quite a bit. He does it to add emphasis to this story. Um, you have Jesus, the son of God, who's being falsely accused. He's in the throes of injustice, sentenced to death. He is willingly laying down his life. And then Peter, who's looking for a way out, following at a distance, trying to disassociate himself with Jesus, trying to preserve his life. Jesus is spit on. He's beaten. Again, Mark doesn't record that first trial before Annas, but he has the same thing there. He's, he's abused by these people. Meanwhile, Peter is warming himself by the fire. He is with the very same soldiers that arrested Jesus, trying to blend in with the crowd. Mark's contrasting these two things. Then we see how Jesus deals with his accusers. Jesus doesn't speak much. And when he does, he speaks scripture. I think there's a lesson here for us. Jesus speaks with great composure. He uses scripture to speak for him. I really do think this is a lesson for us. I think a lot of times what we want to do is, is our brains get working and we have a lot of words. And when we're defending our faith, uh, I know what happens with me. Sometimes we feel like we've got to add something to God's word. We've got to defend it or do something else. And I think God's given us his defense right here. And this can speak for itself. And Jesus knows that. Jesus uses God's words. That's it. 
I think there's a lesson for us there in his silence. When the slave girl looks directly at Peter and says, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus, Peter not only denies the accusation, but he makes it look like the statement itself is irrational. This is what people do when they lie. They try to make it sound irrational. They uh, get defensive and they push back at the person making the accusation. And when the slave girl saw him, she began to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them, but he denied it again. She's not going to let it go. In verse 71, it says, then he began to curse and he swore an oath. I don't know who this man is you're talking about. Now, I think in the, in the original Greek here, there's probably some bleeped out words, okay? That, that's what it's, the translation says. He is belligerent at this point. He is absolutely, um, he's absolutely beside himself, attacking her now, just digging into the lie. Now, here's the thing. I think Peter is probably close enough to Jesus They're in the same place for Jesus to hear some of this going on. And they both know it. He's trying to blend in with the crowd. Jesus is alone. He's on his own. His disciples are scattered. Peter is following in a distance. He's alone. And then this part absolutely crushes me because, and it says, immediately a rooster crowed a second time. And then Peter remembered what Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Man, can you imagine how Peter must have felt in that moment once he realized what he had done? I mean, have you ever hurt somebody that you loved? Maybe uh, it was a parent that you hurt or a child. You didn't live up to their expectations. Maybe it was a good friend and you had an opportunity to stand up for them when people were talking bad about them. Or maybe you talked bad about them and then they overheard it or found out about it. I think we've all done something like that and it absolutely crushes you when you do that. Maybe it's your marriage And maybe that betrayal brought your marriage right to the brink of disaster. Maybe it even pushed it over into disaster. It's hurtful. And you wish you could take the words back and the actions back, but you can't because what's said is said and what's done is done. And man, I think Peter's really feeling that right now. Put yourself in his shoes. That time when you betrayed someone close to you, uh, Peter has betrayed his best friend. He's betrayed his Lord and his Savior. I mean, it wasn't even a day before that Peter, in all of his misled self-confidence, swore to Jesus that he was never going to deny him. Guys, this is Peter, the great teacher, the great leader. This is the guy that has done miracles. He's cast demons out. I mean, he is in. Man, he's following the Lord. How can this happen? Can you imagine what it felt like? And have you ever felt like that yourself? Because if you have, you're in good company this morning. Peter was following at a distance. I think there's a number of lessons that can be taken away from this story. But here's, here's the thing. I don't think that this story is about Peter being a lukewarm Christian. It's not about that. It's not about whether or not Jesus be- or Peter believed that Jesus was his Lord and Savior. He did. I think he did. I think he was all in. That's not what this story is about. 
I mean, if Peter can get cold feet, if the guy who witnessed all the miracles that Jesus did firsthand, he was there when he fed the 5,000. You imagine that? He saw Jesus transfigured before him that I think we should pay really close attention because if Peter can fall, oh man. (laughs) Now remember, the book of Mark is uh, probably most likely based mostly on Peter's testimony to Mark because Mark's too young to to remember all this stuff. Peter's the one that's telling him what's going on here. And I really think, I, I imagine Peter is the one who says, hey, I want you to put this story in here. I want people to know how I really messed up, how I denied Jesus. I want them to know about this. He has a reason he wants us to know about it. So that's what he does. He says, put it in there. I want him to know what a fool I was, how I literally denied Jesus when he was just a few feet away from me in his greatest hour of need. I want people to know that. What did Peter do wrong? How do we avoid the same fate as Peter? Let's look at a few points of failure. His first failure, Peter was overconfident. Remember what he said during the Last Supper? Even if they all fall away, I will not. And verse 31 says, but Peter insisted emphatically, even if I must die with you, I will never deny you. Peter trusted in his own strength. It's a pattern that he's displayed. Uh, Peter is one of those guys who he just jumps in with two feet no matter what he does. And we, we see it through the scriptures and it's, it's awesome in one sense, but he, he, he acts and then he thinks, right? <laughs> he acts first. So remember the time that Jesus, or Peter sees Jesus coming on the water, walking on the water? Peter jumps out of the boat, doesn't he? He's like, I wanna do that, I got it. Peter starts to sink. That's the kind of guy he is. I think Peter's all there. I think he loves Jesus. I think he wants to be there for Jesus. Like I said, I don't think that's his problem. But he's overconfident. He's trusting in his own strength. He's not listening to what Jesus told him at the Last Supper. He's like, no, I got it. I'm your number one fan, Jesus. I'm not going anywhere. Those guys over there, yeah, I get it. But not me, Pete, or not me, Jesus. I'm him. And he's boasting in his own strength. Um... It just brings me back to the words of the Apostle Paul, who was heavily influenced by Peter, of course. I mean, Peter helped train the Apostle Paul. So 2 Corinthians 12, 9 says this, and this is a lesson Peter's learning. But he said to me, my grace is enough for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. So then I will boast most gladly about my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may reside in me. Therefore, I am content with weaknesses, with insults, with troubles, with persecutions and difficulties for the sake of Christ. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. Paul's talking about his thorn in the flesh. uh, And I think, I really think this comes out of and influenced heavily by what Peter does here because he is relying on his own strength to get him through this difficult time. And his strength fails him. He boasts in his own abilities and it fails. And just like Peter, there's many of us here today who I think are trusting in our own strength to get us through. Or we're treating Jesus like plan B or plan C. I got it. 
I can do this. If things get hard, I'll be ready for it. And we're not relying on the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit in us. And I know many of you know how far that gets you because you've probably been there before and realized. I think a lot of people, when their lives fall apart, I see it being around the church, especially when somebody dies. You know, it's interesting when you're at a, uh, a funeral or when you're, when you're doing those kind of things, you're with a family who's just lost somebody they've loved. Uh, I see people either, more, more than not, I see people draw close to God because their life's just fallen apart and now they need him. They realize their need for him. And that's what I see a lot. They realize that they cannot control things. The next failure of Peter is to prepare spiritually. Remember just the night before in the garden, Jesus asks the disciples to pray in the garden and they take a nap, right? Peter wasn't prayed up. Now, you can bet Jesus was prayed up when he got there. Because Jesus, if you look back in the Gospels, he spent time every day with his father, didn't he? I mean, even, that, even in Luke, tells a story about when Jesus, um, when his parents lose him. How do you lose the son of God, right? I can't imagine what kind of anxiety that would be. But they can't find Jesus and where he is. He's in the synagogue and he's teaching. And when they ask him, where are you? He says, well, I'm in my father's house, of course. Where else would I be? So even at such a young age, he knew that he needed to spend time with his father and that's what he did. Jesus was prayed up when he got there. So when I was a kid, we used to have these Wednesday night prayer services. Anybody else have that growing up? Wednesday night church, right? Well, we'd have these prayer services and man, I'll tell you what, as a kid, it seemed like they were never gonna end. Never gonna end. Uh, especially when we had to go up to the altars. Remember those? We had to go up to the altars and kneel, and there was one guy, Mr. Evans, and boy, if he got the mic and started praying, it was over, man. It just wasn't going to be over until Jesus came back. Uh, that guy would pray for everything. I couldn't believe how he could just come up with things to pray for. I remember specifically one time he was praying for um, people's cars. Like, I mean, he would just move. Or, wow. And you're thinking, when's it going to end? Uh, you know, of course, as a kid, that drove me nuts because I wanted it to end. I was, I was uncomfortable um, kneeling at the altars and things like that. But as an adult now, I look back on that and I'm like, man, I want to have, I want to be somebody like that. Just never runs out of stuff to say because there's nothing that's insignificant that God doesn't want to hear from me, right? Man, I admire that guy. Um, <laughs> do you pray daily? Do you pray daily? And I'm not just talking about the kind of prayer that you rattle off from memory. You guys have those in your family, right? We have a prayer that we say every night. We, I didn't like script it out to begin with. It's just sort of become what it is, but it's, it's a very repetitive prayer. I think kids need that. They gotta, they gotta have some kind of structure to learn, but uh, it's gotten kind of interesting because you know, we put, I'm, I'm thankful, we, we name off all of our family members and uh, we've got some dogs in there and a couple of them have passed away and it's kind of like, when is it the right time to not thank the Lord for, you know what I mean? I'm not talking about that kind of prayer. I know you guys have those, right? I'm not the only one. I'm talking about the kind of prayer, the kind of honest prayer where you talk to God and you're honest with him and you ask him the difficult questions, you say the difficult things to him and then you expect to hear from God, right? 
May not be what you want to hear. I'm talking about that kind of prayer. And that takes practice to develop that sort of prayer life. I mean, if you're running out of things to say to God in two minutes, you're not there. You know what I mean? God wants to hear about everything. So Jesus was prayed up. He was ready to go. I don't think Peter was. I, don't, I think he failed to prepare spiritually for what was coming. And finally, Peter failed to prepare physically. Now, I can't say that I blame him entirely because I don't know if Peter knew he was going to be pulling so many all-nighters at this time, but uh, I need sleep. I need sleep. I'm one of those people, I'm pretty sure God created me and I need like 10 hours of sleep a night and I never get it, you know what I mean? But I feel like I need sleep. Uh, I remember the first time that my wife and I and our, our two children at the time, we all got the stomach bug at the same time. Has anybody ever had that happen? Yeah. Um, that was a rough night. <laughs> we were tired and I think by like two in the morning, I was just praying, Lord, bring sweet death upon me. <laughs> That's how tired I was. Eternal rest is what I wanted. Um, yeah, it's tough. And then, of course, my wife and I are going at each other in the middle of the night because we're tired. And that's what happens. Peter's tired. And when you're tired, you sin. It's just the truth. Sometimes it's that easy. And we look back and go, why can't I break this habit of sin? And it's, it could be as simple as, you know what? I'm just not disciplined enough. I'm tired. I look at it this way. King David comes back from battle. He sees Bathsheba, right? He sins. Samson's tired. He falls asleep. What happens? He gets a haircut. Well, somebody gives it to him, but he sins, right? He lets his guard down because he's not disciplined enough. Man, I cannot stress this enough. Sometimes we look for all these answers out here and I really think this is a big one right here. Peter's tired. Um, I, I, I could almost guarantee you the person sitting next to you today, the last fight that you guys had, right, probably was preceded by a poor night's sleep because that causes a lot of stress in marriage and we don't get enough sleep and we don't rest uh, it causes a lot of stress. So, and I think fights usually start at night when we're tired. If we're going to follow Jesus like he intended, we have to be well rested so we don't let our guard down. And I, it's not all about getting sleep every night. There's a big part of it that's about having uh, margin in your life, time to rest. We call a Sabbath, right? Sabbath isn't just coming here. A Sabbath is about an, an extended period of time, a day each week that you're setting aside to rest, to take the word of God in, to spend time in God's presence and to recover. It's so important. We were created to do that. You know, and I think we're really bad at that, especially as Americans. If I talk to any one of you, I won't say anyone, but almost all of you, because I know when I ask people to do things or what's going on in their life, everybody is busy. Everybody's busy all the time, 100% busy, 110% pedal to the floor. And that's not how God created us to be. And if you're doing that, man, you're so much more prone to sin. I love our mission statement. It says that we're making room in life to worship, gather, give, and serve. We're making room in life for each other. And the thing is, uh, it doesn't say finding room in our life because if we had that, nobody would ever do it. 
It's just the truth because none of you all have extra time. I know that. You've got to make room in your life. You have to carve out time in what's already there. You have to prioritize things. I like to look at it that way. Instead of telling somebody I don't have time, I rather think of it as like it's not a priority. Really helps me get things in order. A lot harder to say no to somebody when you say it's not a priority. But sometimes it's honest, you know? I don't feel like I can do that because it's not a priority. We got to rest. We got to get sleep. It takes discipline to do that. How you act tomorrow is <laughs> heavily dependent on how you act today. You know that? What time are you going to go to bed tonight? What are you going to put in your body that's going to help you get through tomorrow? It's very connected. You've lost the battle. You know what I mean? If you haven't, if you haven't succeeded today to do those things, you've almost lost the battle tomorrow. So Peter lets his guard down. Peter follows at a distance. He denies his Lord. Man, I can't imagine how Peter must have felt. I think this was a pivot point in Peter's life. I think his perspective changed big time. This is when it clicks for him. It's the moment when he decided that he was no longer going to trust in his own strength, but he would fully lean on the strength of Christ. Now, if we jump ahead and look at the resurrection, one of the first things Jesus does after he rises, he's got to go find Peter, right? Because he loves Peter. He's got plans for Peter. He wants to go embrace him and let him know that he forgives him. He wants to take that burden away from Peter. He wants to restore Peter. Man, it's so awesome. And we see him go on. We see Peter go on to lead the church. We read through the book of Acts. And it's almost like a totally different guy than we read in the Gospels. Peter gets it. And I really think this is the moment Peter gets it. Should be a really encouraging story for all of us this morning because it means that if you've been following Jesus at a distance, if you have been caught up in the crowd, you're in really good company. I'm glad Peter was willing to tell us about his failures and I'm glad that we get to read about Jesus, how he struggled. He was human, right? Jesus was a human. He struggled like we do with the weight of the task he had to complete. Some of us are gonna face great challenge and persecution for following Jesus and others of us will not. But we are all called to be ready for when that time comes and that takes discipline. It's gotta be prayed up. You gotta be ready for when that time comes. So if you've been following at a distance this morning or if you've denied Christ under the pressure, if you've gone with the crowd, Jesus is ready to forgive and restore you this morning. And that is great news for all of us. Will you follow him today? Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you love us even when we do stupid things. God, you, <laughs> you call us your own. You don't give up on us. You're faithful to complete the work that you began in us. Father, I pray that you would help us to have the discipline, God, to be prayed up, to have that relationship with you, that daily communication with you, so when the hard times come, Lord, we can be ready to stand firm, just as Jesus did. God, forgive us 
for following in a distance. We want to walk beside you, with you. We want to be like you. God, we glorify you in your name. Amen. All right. Thank you, guys. Hey, real quick before you go, Resurrection Sunday is coming up in just a few weeks. Make sure you're telling your friends and your neighbors about it. It's going to be a great time. Pastor Ben's going to be back next week. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful week.